Thank you for listening to Desert Spring United Methodist Sunday Sermon. We're glad you found us and that you chose to be part of our church. Online listeners, you are a significant part of our church community, and we're grateful you're with us. We hope you enjoy the sermon you're about to hear. If you would like to engage with our staff, we can be found on Facebook, Vimeo, and Instagram. Or call us at 702-256-5933. So this is uh, week two in a series of sermons, When Christians Get It Wrong. The series comes out of research that has been conducted primarily with young adults in our country um, who have been leaving the Christian church in record numbers um, and what they say about, about their experience with Christians. Remember from last week, 92% of young adults say that they believe Christians to be judgmental um, and arrogant. Uh, and they point to lots of different reasons why they say that. One of those reasons has to do with their perception of how Christians respond to people of other faiths, of other religions. So we're going to turn our attention to that this morning. And with that, let's begin with a word of prayer. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable unto thee, O Lord our God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I grew up in a predominantly Christian neighborhood. Pretty much everybody I knew was Christian. Even if they didn't go to church, they still said that they were Christian. And I didn't really know anybody of any other faith. I never met a Muslim or a Buddhist or a Hindu. So when a preacher would say that people of other faiths are destined to hell, well, I just figured they must be really bad people. I didn't know differently. And then I grew up, and I got out in this world, and I started meeting folks. And lots of you know about my friend Newt. In 1981, I met Newt, and we were immediately drawn to one another. We became best of friends. Newt was Zen Buddhist. And of course, I was Christian. And, and we enjoyed each other's company, and we enjoyed talking with each other about what it was there, what it is that we believed. Newt would often tell me, David, you're such a good person, in your next life you're going to be a Buddhist. <laughs> and I would, I would tell him, Newt, I see the prevenient grace of God at work in your life. You just can't see it yet, but God will prevail, as we would talk about our faith and our differences. And when I would hear judgmental talk about other religions, you know, knowing Newt, it became personal. There's something about it that didn't feel quite right. Felt like we weren't trusting in that provenient grace of God to bring about change in people's lives. Well, fast forward to our children, our now adult children. They grew up in a world that was very different from the world in which I grew up. They grew up in a multicultural, pluralistic world, and they had friends from lots of different faiths. And they had friends who had no faith or who were seeking and trying to figure out what faith was supposed to, or what life was supposed to be about. And for them, it was inconceivable that the God of love that they believed in would condemn somebody to hell just because they didn't profess Jesus. It's a voice that comes from a lot of young adults. I want to read you a quote that comes from the survey that was conducted with young adults. 
people all over the world could live the best life. They could be compassionate. They could be understanding. They could do their best to help their community, to help other people, to serve their nation. But you're going to tell me that this person who has lived an idyllic life of moral value is going to go to hell just because he didn't say, I love Jesus. There's something that's not right. Young adults would say that such statements are arrogant and judgmental and they don't want anything to do with it. And we can kind of understand why they would think that that's what Christianity is about. I mean, it is a narrative that is spoken pretty loudly across our country. This narrative, this way of thinking is called Christian exclusivism. And Christian exclusivism goes something like this. If my friend Newt does not confess Jesus as his savior before he dies, then he will go to hell. That's what Christian exclusivism would say. They would point to this understanding that, that, there, that sin has infected all of humanity and that sin cannot dwell in the presence of God. But now God in God's mercy has done something about that, sending Jesus into this world to take upon himself our sins. And if we accept what Jesus has done, then our sins are forgiven and we can stand before God. A good way to think about this would be to think of a life preserver. Within Christian exclusivism, it's, it's as if we're, we're floating in a sea of our own sinfulness about to perish when God tosses us a life preserver. And if we grab onto the life preserver, we'll be saved. And if we don't, we're still floating in the sea of our own sinfulness about to perish. And of course, Jesus would be that life preserver and faith would be grabbing on to it. So, Christian exclusivism says. And this is the narrative that young adults find so judgmental and so arrogant. And it is one that is proclaimed loudly across our country. It's the voice that comes primarily from the from ultra-conservative evangelical Christians. But it's not the only narrative, it's not the only voice when it comes to this question among Christians. It's not our only voice. There are actually two other significant ways of understanding this question within Christianity. Another one of them is called Christian universalism. And basically that says, Newt's going to go to heaven, he just doesn't know it yet. Okay? What they would say is that Jesus' death was sufficient to pay for all sin and that nothing is needed but Jesus' death. They would point to how through one man, Adam, sin came into this world and infected us all and how through one man, Jesus, Salvation came, the cure came, so that all will be saved. 
And every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Like Christian exclusivism, which is rooted in our understanding of certain scriptures, Christian universalism is rooted in their understanding of certain scriptures. And it basically says, we're all going to go to heaven. But there's a third way that Christians understand this question of what's going to happen to Newt. And it kind of sits between those other two. It's called Christian inclusivism. And Christian inclusivism has some very well-known proponents. People like John Wesley, who was the founder of the Methodist movement. But also, in more recent years, Billy Graham. And the great author, C.S. Lewis. Christian inclusivism recognizes that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. But it also recognizes that there's a whole lot of mystery in life. There's a whole lot of things that we do not know. And a whole lot of ways that God might be at work in this world that are beyond our ability to see or to comprehend. We don't know what happens to a person in a moment of dying. We don't know what happens to a person in a moment of death. We don't know what happens to a person in those moments after death. We don't know what happens to a person standing before our Lord. And we certainly don't know what criteria our Lord is going to use to determine somebody's righteousness. I mean, if we really want to put that on God, our understanding of the gospel is how God has to act. Well, then God help us all, right? So this is a recognition. We don't understand all of the ways of God, so we're simply going to trust in God. We're going to trust in God. We're going to trust in God's goodness and in God's ability to prevail. Christian inclusivism is this way of saying there's things we do not know, but we trust in God. Now, C.S. Lewis, in his series, The Chronicles of Narnia, has a moment where he expresses Christian inclusivism very well. It's in the last book of the series called The Last Battle. And there's a scene there where Aslan, remember in C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, Aslan is the Christ figure, Aslan's a lion, the Christ figure. Where, where there's a man brought before Aslan the lion for judgment. The man's name is Emeth. And Emeth had been a worshiper of a false god named Tash for his whole life. His parents taught him to worship Tash, and he sought to be devout to Tash throughout his whole life. And then suddenly he finds himself before Aslan the lion and realizes he'd been mistaken his whole life. This is what C.S. Lewis writes. Emmeth describes what happens next. Aslan touched my forehead and said, Son, thou art welcome. But I said, Alas, Lord, I am no son of thine, but the servant of Tash. Aslan answered, Child, all the service thou hast done to Tash, I account as service done to me. Then I said, Lord, 
Is it then true that thou and Tash are one? The lion growled, it is false. I said, I've been seeking Tash all my days. Beloved, said the glorious one, if your desire had been for me, you would have not sought so long, for all who for all find what they truly seek. That's that vision of Christian inclusivism, where ultimately our Lord will determine what counts as righteous. So back to where we began, Christians don't agree on the question, what happens to Newt after he dies? We don't agree. There is a narrative that's proclaimed pretty loudly across our country that's that exclusivist position. And it's to that that young adults are responding by saying that they want nothing to do with Christianity. But I keep thinking, if they hear a different narrative, if they come to understand that Christianity stands for something other than that, well, they may indeed realize that life with Christ can be life-giving. We may not all agree on, on what happens to Newt, but Christians do agree that Jesus' life and death and resurrection matters to us and matters eternally. And Christians do agree that it's important for us to be sharing our story. And to that, we're going to turn our attention in just a moment. So let's listen to the reading of Scripture. Sharon, will you read for us? This is from Acts 17, verses 16 through 25. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he argued in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and also in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Also, some Epicurean and Stoic philosophers debated with him. Some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign divinities. This was because he was telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So they took him and brought him to the era Areopagus. I'm sorry. <laughs> I did really good the first service. So they took him and brought him to the Areopagus and asked him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? It sounds rather strange to us, so we would like to know what it means. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners living there would spend their time in nothing but telling or hearing something new. Then Paul stood in front of the Areopagus and said, Athenians, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. For as I went through the city and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found among them an altar with the inscription, To an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it he who is Lord of heaven and earth does not live in shrines made by human hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mortals life and breath and all things. Second reading is from John 14, verses 5 through 9. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
If you know me, you will know my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father and we will be satisfied. Jesus said to him, have I been with you all this time, Philip, and you still do not know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Sharon. And you did well with that place. <laughs> you got there. I love that story from Paul uh, when he goes to visit Athens. Athens was a city known for its philosophers. Philosophers loved to gather there and to philosophize with one another. They loved to argue with one another, to pick each other's philosophies apart. This was something that they did and loved to do. Not an easy place for one to come with a new idea, to share one's faith story. Paul arrives there, and the first thing that he does is he starts learning about the Athenians, listening to people, to what's important to them, paying attention. And then as he's listening and paying attention, he finds these moments when he kind of gets into arguments with folks about what he believes as compared to what they believe. And those arguments aren't getting him anywhere except for they get him noticed by this group of philosophers who think, aha, somebody with a new idea, this will be fun. And so they invite him to that place that Sharon tried to say <laughs> in order for him to share his ideas. Their goal, to pick them apart. That's what they do. So how did Paul begin? By saying, if you don't believe in Jesus, you're going to go to hell? That would not have gone very far. Instead, he starts with respect. He demonstrates that he's been listening to them and to what's important to them. He he quotes their poetry. He points out this God that they say is an unknown God. And he talks to them about things that he knows they agree with. Finding that common ground until he finally gets to that place where he says this unknown God of yours is being made known in Jesus Christ. There's some wonderful lessons that come from Paul's experience uh, in Athens when it comes to the responsibility of Christians sharing their faith. Now, as Christians, we're all following Jesus. That's the life of being a Christian, to be a follower, a, an apprentice of his, learning to live in the way that he would have us to live. He tells us a couple of things that are fundamental to the life of being a disciple. Commandments, love the Lord your God with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength and like that, love your neighbor as yourself, the great commandment. And of course, that commandment is some, not something that we just immediately start doing, but it's something we grow in our understanding of how we live that out 
as we follow Jesus. He also gives us the commandment to go and make disciples of all people, to baptize them and to teach them what Jesus had commanded. And likewise, that commandment is not something we just do, but something that we're learning how to do in the process of following Jesus. These two commandments, loving God and making disciples, are intended to go hand in hand. And if ever we compromise one for another, we're going to get it wrong. If ever we compromise loving people by being judgmental, for instance, in an attempt to try and make disciples, we've gotten it wrong. And if ever we love people but never getting around to sharing our story, we're not getting it right then either. The two belong hand in hand. Now, there was a time when, you know, evangelism is kind of a bad word today, but when evangelism might be argumentative, confrontational, you try to win an argument and win somebody over to Christ. And that might have worked in the modern world, but in the postmodern world, truth can only be known in relationship. And so relationships is the place where, where truth becomes known, where sharing our story becomes possible. And it makes sense because the commandment that Jesus says that, you know, summarizes it all is to love each other. And love is a relational thing, so, so we love one another. And in this kind of relationship, opportunities arise to share what's most important to us. There's four things that I want to share with you about how we live out this partnership of the Great Commandment and the Great Commission, loving others and making disciples. The first thing is that as Christians, we need to live authentic lives. Not just preach with our words, but also with our actions. We need to live out our values. Being compassionate and kind and humble and patient and forgiving. Being loving with one another. We need to live out our values in order for anybody to be interested in the Christian faith. And part of living out our values is learning to be honest as well. To be honest about the ways that Christians have gotten it wrong and the hurt that has come from that. We have to be honest with ourselves that there have been times where Christians have gotten it wrong and, and defended racism, defended treating women as second-class citizens. There have been times where we've gotten it wrong and has caused hurt and pain to other people. We need to be honest about that and in repentance recognize that's not how we're going to live as Christians anymore and be clear that those examples are examples of Christians getting it wrong and we're seeking to understand how to get it right, how to live our lives in a way that is truly one that will glorify God. We seek to get it right. So we have to be authentic in our life. That's the first thing. The second thing is that we need to make certain that we 
listen carefully, as Paul did among the Athenians. We listen carefully, not in order to try to find a place to win an argument, but because we care, because we care about people. We listen carefully to their stories, curious about their stories and about how they understand life and about how life works for them, recognizing that the prevenient grace of God is at work in their lives, so they very well have things that they could teach us about our own lives. We listen, opening ourselves up to what we ourselves can even learn from the ways that we see God at work. We listen carefully and do so non-judgmentally. As soon as we bring judgment into it, well, we put ourselves in the position of God. Our job is to love. So we love people, living out our values, listening and being curious about their lives. And as we do that, inevitably, there will come opportunities for us to share something of our own faith. I mean, if people feel like they're loved and cared for, they want to know about our own lives. And so it's important for us to be prepared to share our story. We all have stories that we can tell, stories of what our faith means to us, of what forgiveness means to us, of what the promise of eternal life means to us, stories of times where prayers have been answered or healing has come to our lives, stories of the providence of God, the guidance of God, the help of God in times of need. We have stories that we can tell. And as we are prepared to tell those stories, there will be opportunities when people will be sharing what's important to them, want to know what's important to us. And we have the opportunity then to speak a life-giving word. Not with the goal of converting somebody, but as a part of being in a truthful relationship out of love and care for one another. The fourth thing, is that we need to remember to trust in God. Trust in God. Look for ways that we can see the prevenient grace of God at work in people's lives. Point that out. Celebrate the ways the prevenient grace of God is at work in people's lives. And trust that God can do what God wants to do in another person's life. It's not our job to tell somebody else how to live their life. It's our job to love them as we partner with God in the work that God is doing in another's life. This is the stuff of writing a new narrative. A narrative that's different from that arrogant, judgmental narrative that says, if you don't believe the way that I believe, you're going to go to hell. Instead, we write a narrative that says, your life matters. It matters to me. It matters to God. A narrative that proclaims good news of Jesus Christ. Well, there's a lot that I could say about this. My sermon is actually like four times as long. And I'd, I'd take a couple pages out and then have three more to add, and it just kept getting longer and longer. There's a lot more that I could say about this, but I'm not going to do that now because we're going to run out of time. But rather, just invite you to think about these things, to think about these things and how in the midst of a time where there are so many young adults who see Christians as being judgmental and arrogant, we have a very, very different story, not just to tell, 
but to live. Thanks be to God. Amen? Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Desert Spring United Methodist Church. New sermons are posted weekly. Follow us to get updates and news from your church.